Hello and welcome to Fraud Talk, the ACFE's monthly podcast. I'm Rihanna Scoggins, the Community Manager for the ACFE, and today I am joined by Michael Boer, Senior Investigator for the Tennessee Comptroller of the Treasury. He was a speaker at the 34th Annual ACFE Global Fraud Conference, and his session titled Ghost Story, a Case Study of a Nonprofit that Disappeared, is the case we'll actually be discussing today. It was full of interesting characters, skeletons in closets, and some ghosting as well. Um, thank you so much for being here today, Michael. And thank you, Rihanna, for having me. Uh, I'm actually honored that you would even ask or consider me, so it's really my <laughs> pleasure to be here. Thank you. Thank you. I, um, For a little bit of background for our listeners, I was actually able to sit in on Michael's session, um, and I wrote a blog up about it on the ACFU's broadconferencenews.com. Um, so once I saw that, I was like, ah, yes, we have to have a deeper conversation about this. And uh, what better month than the month of October for that? So before we begin, can you briefly introduce yourself and your role at the Tennessee Comptroller of the Treasury? Absolutely. Thank you. And thanks for that awesome blog post that you did at the conference. It, it really, it did very effectively capture a summary of, of my presentation in the case. So it, it's great quick read for anybody that's more interested in this case. And it's on the ACFE uh, web page presence. So about me again, my name is Michael Boer, and I'm currently a senior investigator at the Tennessee Comptroller of the Treasury. Um, I work for the Division of Investigations at the Comptroller of the Treasury. And the comptroller's office is a very large office in state government. I call us the accounting branch of state government, but really we, we do, the comptroller's office has purview over so many different things in terms of state government, local governments, um, valuing property in the state, assessing or evaluating the tax rates on that property in the state and the division of investigations. So the entire office has over 400 employees. The division of investigations isn't even quite 10% of that entire massive office. But our charge in the division of investigations is to review and investigate any potential fraud, waste, or abuse of public funds within the state of Tennessee. Of course, that wouldn't really necessarily encompass federal funds as that has its own investigative agencies that look into those matters, although we do work with those groups uh, depending on the situation. Um, but regardless, uh, public money can also affect private industry enterprises if they receive things like grant dollars. And that's exactly what led us to the investigation of a nonprofit that used to exist in Nashville, Tennessee called Phases, Inc. Perfect. So, um, obviously, you've you know you've been involved um, for quite a while. Very experienced. What inspired you to present this case at the thirty fourth annual ACC Global Fraud Conference? What what set this case apart from the rest for you? Sure, and and it's an interesting question because I never really thought about it sort of in that vacuum. What was it that drew me to this specific one? Um, you know, and, and so really, it, 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 well, first and foremost, the case and the investigation itself had some teachable moments and takeaways, but that doesn't necessarily make it unique because I have sort of a personal goal with all my investigations. It's like, okay, what could I learn from this process? What could I have done better at this process? And what could I tell somebody who is maybe new at the job about what happened in this investigation that helped him or help her 
be a little bit more efficient at what they do. So the case absolutely had some of those elements, but again, that's not necessarily unique. Um, there were a lot of the unique challenges with this one as far as just finding evidence and finding people to talk to, because generally speaking, especially if we're investigating a state agency, a local government, or some element of one of those things, there is an office to go to. There is someone who has taken the role of the person who has been terminated, perhaps, and I can talk to that person about that job. With Phases, Inc., as the title of, of my presentation and everything alludes to, they had ghosted, they had vaporized, they had vanished, there was no one to go talk to. So that was a very unique sort of situation for us, just nobody to really go talk to that was directly involved with, with the organization, with the events that occurred. But, you know, truthfully, honestly, what's probably one thing that stands out about this one that made it interesting is the cast of characters involved with Faces <laughs> Inc. They are, they are just I think in the world of white collar crime, they are somewhat unique in that they, on the whole, dabbled in a little bit more than just white collar type crime, historically speaking. Definitely. So um, with those interesting characters, which I I don't believe I even got to touch on in my blog, because um, that would have been a whole nother blog in itself. <laughs> um, with these very interesting characters in this case, can you give us a brief overview of the people who made this so particularly unique? Absolutely. And so I remember way back a very long time ago when I was in high school, there was this commercial. They had TVs in the high school and they played these commercials on the TVs. And one was a recruiting commercial for the U.S. Navy. And I remember the tagline in that commercial was, if someone wrote a book about your life, would anybody want to read it? And I think a lot of these characters in this story, people would want to read that book, but not for like good reasons, right? Uh, the one person, though, that kind of stands out that that sort of had, I think, altruistic uh, motivation and, and, and purpose in his life was the founder of Phases, Inc., and that's kind of where Phases started, right? Uh, Mr. Tate Rogers, an interesting person, but for the right reasons, you know, this person that went out and founded and established these uh, these these substance abuse service rehabilitation type programs. Mm -hmm. Interesting person, successful person. But beyond that was just sort of one little starting point of the story. We had his protege in that specific entity, Phases Inc., uh, Miss Casey, who, as we quickly learned, had her own legal problems that extended beyond even the case that we investigated. And we're actually sort of coming to the surface right around the time we received this allegation. And those legal issues were very public in Nashville where this all occurred because they involved a FBI sting operation uh, involving her making ultimately making secret recordings of conversations with her boss and affiliate at the time, a judge here in Nashville named Casey Moreland. And both of them are ultimately indicted at the federal level for an embezzlement scheme. But when you dug deeper into the situations surrounding Judge Moreland at that time, it involved very suspicious suicide that occurred across the street from the courthouse in Nashville involving a young woman with whom he had been affiliated that was not his spouse. And when the police were investigating that death, that suspicious death, they were reviewing that person's cell phone. It revealed interesting relationships with defense attorneys who had interesting relationships with the judge and all of these other young women in Nashville who had been 
seen in his court for various and sundry uh, legal issues. So that was a very fascinating sort of element of the case that we had to at least consider while doing this investigation. And that doesn't even lead us to the main subject of our investigation, right? Who is Miss Julia Armstrong, another sort of person who had been through that court process, though, uh, revolving her decades of substance abuse problems, who then went through Phases, Inc. as a client and then was ultimately deemed perhaps one of their most successful success stories as she ultimately became a graduate of that program. She achieved sobriety for a period. She was known as just a volunteer and a member of the group therapy sessions there. She then sort of elevated that to an unpaid role as a house manager at the Phases Inc. entity. And then ultimately, uh, going back to the founder, uh, Mr. Rogers, when he had to step away from the organization due to health reasons, uh, Ms. Armstrong was selected as the director to take over that organization, Phases Inc. And, and her receiving that promotion and becoming the director and the sort of only oversight of Phases Inc. is what led us into our investigation. But besides that, the interesting characters didn't stop there. There was an interesting character whom we met who had done Phases tax prep for a number of years, who we tried to get information from. There was a former bookkeeper at Phases Inc. who had a very interesting history in the criminal justice system. Didn't have anything to do with white collar crime, but more substance abuse related ones. There was a different investigation that my office had conducted before I was even hired there involving a similar grant program involving a couple of pastors who had a very interesting history with the criminal justice system. And then ultimately the clients themselves of Phases Inc. who had interesting situations themselves. So really a lot, very long list. I mean, you could almost write several chapters in one book on each of these individual <laughs> characters and all of their crazy stories that they had that all crossed paths at some point at Phases Inc. So that was a little bit of a long answer to your question, <laughs> but there was a long list of people that it involved, right? Well, thank you for proving my point that I didn't have enough room in my blog to write about them. <laughs> Absolutely not. So um, looking back at Phases Inc., um, the investigation didn't just you know immediately pop up at the Tennessee Comptroller of the Treasury. How did the Department of Mental Health and Substance Abuse Services initially become involved in Phases Inc.? Where did uh, where did that initial uh, interest begin? Sure. So the Tennessee Department of Mental Health and Substance Abuse Services has many programs that it's a, it's involved with licensing professionals who deal with mental health issues, substance abuse therapy issues, and as a result of that, they also have grant dollars that flow to them from the federal government or from the state legislature. And they have they take the they have these grant programs which are all mission focused, trying to solve issues related to mental health and substance abuse. And so they have routine meetings with persons who are licensed with them to work in these areas. And in their continuing education, if you will, for these types of licensure things. They will say, by the way, there are these grant programs and it can help you if you have indigent persons, maybe, or, or whatever the target, whatever the purpose or mission of these grants are. In this case, indigent persons who need these services, we have dollars that can help you accomplish the goal. And so some decade, probably maybe even 20 years ago at this point, now that we're in 2023, mental health was having one of its annual sort of meetings for continuing education with its licensees. 
and a person who was a licensed substance abuse counselor with phases was introduced to the fact that they could get money for providing indigent care services to people who were indigent who came into their program. And so phases was a longtime recipient of this addiction recovery program grant from mental health and substance abuse services. By the time that I believe it was calendar 2017 rolled around when Ms. Armstrong became involved. So mental health and substance abuse services had been doing its every few year grant site visits with Phases Inc. They had had a successful site visit in 2013. They had a successful grant site visit in 2015. And the calendar rolled around at the beginning of calendar 2018 for mental health to go out and do another site visit for this grant recipient, Phases Inc. So they made a phone call out to Phases Inc.'s office to set up the site visit in spring 2018. And the person who answered the phone said, oh yes, you know, I'm the person that you would need to coordinate with to do that. And I'd be happy to do that with you, but I'm getting ready to have surgery soon. And this is not a great time for us to do a site visit. Could we maybe recheck and, and check back in with each other in a few months, six months, something along those lines. And the, the grant monitor folks at mental health and substance abuse services said, yes, that sounds good. You know, we have other sites that we can go visit and programs to monitor. We will check back in the fall. So fall 2018 rolls around, which is right about five years ago at this point. And they called back the phone number that they had for Phases Inc. where they had spoken to the individual that was due for surgery in the spring. And when they made that phone call, the phone line had been disconnected. So not, you know, getting not a good feeling about that, but not necessarily knowing if there was an issue with phone bill or an issue with just phone service or maybe a change to, to another phone system. They went out to just do an unannounced site visit and it was located here in Nashville. So that wasn't too much of a, of a huge deal. And when they showed up to the address where phases had been for 20, 30, probably not 30 years, but 25 years at that point, they found that the building had been emptied out and it had been sold and it had new occupants and they had nothing really to do with Phases Inc. They kind of remembered meeting some folks that were cleaning out the building when they bought it, but they, they didn't really know anything about Phases Inc. And they're getting ready to start a new entity in that same space. And so after all that occurred, in conjunction with the fact that mental health had paid out the entirety of that year's grant by the time they showed up and the building was empty, that's when they contacted the Comptroller of the Treasury. And in the state of Tennessee, any government officials, be them in state or local government, that become aware of any potential fraud, waste, or abuse are statutorily required to notify our office and our division of investigations of any potential fraud, waste, or abuse when they become aware of it. So that's what led them to contact us about that matter. And that's, again, going back, that's how they became involved with phases in the first place. After, after receiving this initial tip, um, and kind of discovering Phases Inc. and, you know, starting to dig into, you know, what's going on with them, you know, this, this ghosting, um, essentially. Um, where, where did you guys start? Um, you know, did you just initially go to a single person? I know you mentioned uh, Kate Rogers before. Absolutely. And so Mr. Rogers, who had been on so many documents and grant contracts with Phases Inc. throughout the years as its founder and director for a long period of time, 
was the first person we wanted to talk to, aside from Ms. Armstrong, I suppose. But what we had been told when we went for our initial interview with the folks at mental health that tried to go out and meet with her, they said, yeah, you know, we, we can't find her anywhere. We're not sure where she's located. Not to jump ahead too much, but therefore we decided to start with Mr. Rogers, who again had been on every grant contract up until the most recent one. And so we reached out to a phone number that we had for him. And the long story short of that, we were finally able to speak with his spouse and she agreed to meet with us and we really wanted to talk to him. But as we did learn when we had a meeting with his spouse, who is a, a very open and, and gracious person for taking her time to meet with us, was that unfortunately in the year and a half or so leading up to when we reached out to her, he had been um, he had been declining with his health and he was ultimately diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease. And so by the time that we came a calling to talk to him, he was no longer in a state where he could really provide us reliable information or we could even hold a conversation with him to learn anything about you know what had happened how phases used to operate when he was still in charge or what had happened since someone else had taken over. But in any case, like I said, his spouse um, was very kind to sit down and talk with us about, you know, her knowledge of the history of phases. Inc. she herself did not ever work in any of the organizations that he, um, that he founded and that he ran. She was a professional who worked in her own industry, but obviously being, uh, married to him for some number of decades at that point, she was familiar with his work to an extent. And 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 so she explained to us that, again, Ms. Armstrong had been a longtime sort of client uh, of Phases, Inc. Uh, I think maybe something like 10 years prior to when she took over to Phases, she came in through the drug court as a referral from the drug court um, as, as a person who was a client. And, and by applying herself to phases and, and, and dedicating herself to that program, she achieved sobriety and she's a success for them. Like I said, she hung around afterwards, um, staying involved with group therapy type things, eventually being elevated to the role of a house manager, which is like a volunteer who would help, you know, make sure that the place, because it was a, a residential facility. So she would make sure that they were stocked with groceries, that the people who were staying there we're not, you know, bringing drugs into the house or actively sort of relapsing on the property and that type of thing, and just sort of very involved in that community. So much so that when it came time for Mr. Rogers to retire, he thought of her to be the best person to carry the legacy of phases forward and see that it remained a successful program. And that all occurred sometime around 2017. So we were told that the family of Mr. Rogers decided to retain ownership of the building at that time when he stepped away from the operations of phases and that Miss Armstrong took over, if you will, sort of the entity of phases, the business of phases, taking ownership of its bank account, taking over all the operational responsibilities with which she was very familiar, having been a house manager and a volunteer and a successful client there, um, and just sort of continue phases on as it had been existing for so many years prior to when she took over. And so your question was, but how did that, I'm sorry, I'm make sure I'm answering your question. Uh, that's that's where we started was was talking with, with Mr. Rogers and then ultimately his spouse. Um, Mr. Rogers' spouse also gave us some referrals, again, of persons who they had used sort of like, you know, where could we possibly get some records? Since the building was emptied out, you all had no affiliation with it uh, by the time that that happened, really. You know, so did, did they leave any records behind after you evicted them? Because 
what she told us is that you know things started out okay when Miss Rogers or Miss 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 Armstrong, excuse me, took over Phases Inc. She was paying them rent and everything, and as far as they knew, there were no problems. But eventually, Miss Armstrong stopped paying the rent uh, bills that were due to the Rogers family for leasing the space for Phases to operate. So after some six seven months, uh, ultimately the Rogers family decided to evict Phases. Uh, they didn't want to do that, but they were not being paid for the agreement of the lease, and they're not being communicated with by Miss Armstrong or anyone else. And well, she was the management of phases at that point. So ultimately, they made the decision to evict her. Uh, they did not. They said that there were no records left behind to provide to us when phases was evicted. Um, and so they referred us to a person who had prepared their taxes in years past. Um, so ultimately, we talked to that person on the phone. But he said it was sort of a similar situation when it boiled down to um, dealing with Miss Armstrong. He would ask her for things in, in an attempt to try to prepare their Form 990 as a nonprofit organization. But ultimately, he received no communication back from them. He received no documents from Miss Armstrong. So for that period, the grant period we were interested in, uh, he had nothing to provide to us aside to tell us that, yes, Miss Armstrong was very bad with paperwork and she never responded to his requests, which was not a surprise at that point, just based on what little we had heard and the fact that she had ghosted the state of Tennessee. So it was no shock that she had ghosted their tax preparer or her landlord for that matter. Yeah, definitely. So um, obviously there's kind of this overarching theme of uh, not being able to get the evidence you need, um, not being able to talk to the people, Julia Armstrong, um, that you need to talk to for this investigation. Um, so can you talk a bit more about like those roadblocks and, you know, kind of working through them in this investigative process? Absolutely. So again, you know, going out to the, the facility was not an option here. Going out and talk to coworkers or board members because of the arrangement that existed by the time that Ms. Armstrong took over was not an option here because she was the one person that we really had that we could talk to about those things. Aside from the folks at mental health who had actually been the ones to go out and discover that she was in fact gone. So at this point, we really were at a crossroads of the investigation. You know, we don't have a lot of places to go to try to obtain these records of client service that she ultimately billed the grant for and received payment for because the documents are all gone and there were no computers remaining or anything else like that, no devices for us to go back and, and get that information from. So do we just wrap this up as something that we cannot investigate sort of due to a lack of resources or it would be too much time that we would need to dump into this for too little of a chance of actually getting the resolution or is there anything else that we can do? And another quick thing about, you know, trying to track down this Armstrong at this point, the, the folks at Mental Health Substance Abuse Services and, you know, her former landlord of the Rogers family, they had no forwarding address. And I mean, this is all public information. Miss Armstrong's criminal history that led her ultimately into a rehabilitation program through, you know, 15 years uh, of, of arrests in the criminal justice system here in Nashville, basically all had to do with crack cocaine addiction and prostitution. And I only say that because she had experience, if we, if you will, and sort of a long history of, of sort of living under the radar without a fixed address. So we didn't even necessarily have at that point 
a last known address to go to for her um, to try to track down wherever she may have been living or may have been working at that time to try to even have a shot at talking to her at that point in the investigation. So really, we, we did not have a lot of options at that point. So in discussing the challenges with our boss at the time, who is now happily retired, but she said, you know, there is an investigation that this is reminding me of uh, that was released sort of before my time at the office. Um, and it involved a church in the Nashville area that also was the recipient of the Addiction Recovery Program grant from Mental Health and Substance Abuse Services. Why don't you go read that report, she said, and think about what it said and see if there's anything that you could do that was similarly done in that investigation uh, that maybe you could apply here. And if not, then we'll just wrap this up as we don't have the resources to pursue this at this time. So we took a look at that and found it, and it was something called, uh, I think it was uh, Mount Hopewell Community, Community Development Corporation, which was run through some Mount Hopewell church uh, here in Nashville, Tennessee. And what that investigation uncovered uh, was that Mount Hopewell started an addiction program service through its ministry, through its church. And I believe sort of the crux of what was going on in that investigation is, you know, they had access to individuals who, who did come through their program. And unfortunately, due to the nature of drug addiction, they had basically a list of persons who had gone through the program and who had eventually died and succumbed to the addiction, to what addiction can do to people. You know, it's very tragic. They knew that these people had passed away, but what they were doing is taking that list of persons who had passed away, and I suppose they knew that they wouldn't be doing anything else with, you know, their identities wouldn't be doing anything because they were no longer living, and so they were submitting them to the grant and getting reimbursement payments for supposedly serving them, even though they had passed away, and the investigators were able to prove that with records of of death and to show that they were billing for people that could never possibly have been served in the addiction program because they had died. And so we thought, okay, well, we could get the list of people that mental health, you know, paid out under the last year of the grant to Phases Inc. And we can use publicly available, you know, death records to find out if any of those people have passed away because most of them resided either in Nashville or Davidson County, which is the county where Nashville is located or in the surrounding counties. So we weren't having to reach, you know, across the entire United States to try to find these people and what happened to them. So we got that list uh, of persons who have been served or supposedly served by the grant or by Phases Inc. under and reimbursed by the grant in that final year. Um, and we were able to search public records uh, to determine whether or not they had passed away. Fortunately, in this phase of the investigation, we went through that entire list of persons, however many people they claim to have served under the auspice of the grant uh, in, in that final grant year. And I want to say it was something between 30 and 50 persons that they got reimbursed from the grant for serving who were supposedly indigent uh, in that final grant year. And we found that not a single one of them, at least at that time, and hopefully still not to this day, had passed away, which is great. Um, but what we did uncover is that, and not surprisingly, due to the fact these people are dealing with drug and substance abuse issues, is that many of them had criminal records. And so filtering that down further with the records that we had from mental health of the types of services they're being provided and the dates they're supposedly being provided those services per the grant, we determined that a number of them were actually incarcerated when Phases Inc. was supposedly providing services to them. So with these 
uh, these different like fraudulent activities that you sort of discovered through seeing um, similar cases like Mount Hopewell. And now that you have all of this information and you're aware of the dealings, how were you able to finally locate Julia Armstrong and what charges were ultimately brought against her? Sure. So, you know, and going back into the grant, um, so the grant did require Miss Armstrong as the person who was managing phases and who was sort of the person that, you know, was on the grant contract as the manager of phases. So how the how that all functioned was, you know, she had to log into a portal because phases was awarded the grants. So they had a portal that they had to access in order to get reimbursed um, for, for the things that they claimed that they did. So she would log into the portal with credentials given only to her by the state. And she would say, okay, on date X, uh, we provided this person with this specific service, be it a group counseling session or an individual counseling session. And we provided them with a, a, a bed for the evening because this is a residential facility or that type of thing, this specific date, this amount of time. And the grant agreed to reimburse them specific dollar amounts for those specific services on those specific dates, as long as they're in the grant window. And this person that they're claiming had been served was pre-approved as an indigent person through the grant. So sorry, that was developing, piggybacking a little bit on the last answer there, but just sort of trying to develop again the mechanics of the scheme. But going through a lot of this and our conversations with people who were familiar with Phases Inc., um, we still didn't know where Ms. Armstrong was. And so ultimately, and, and as a little bit of an aside, um, well, did talk with other individuals um, like Miss Casey, sort of who was uh, working with Phases Inc. as a volunteer uh, at the time that Julia was a client there and talking with her about what she knew or could remember about Julia. And she, of course, remembered her very well and at least fondly as a client. But what she had learned is that Miss Armstrong sort of had fallen astray of the mission of Phases after she took over the business. And she, but ultimately she was not familiar or aware of where Miss Armstrong was. And, you know, she was sort of devastated by what had happened to Phases. And she, not only did she not know where she was, she didn't necessarily want to see her because of what had happened. And we also sort of heard that from the Rogers family too. I mean, they were somewhat kind of disgusted by what had happened. So they didn't know what had happened to Miss Armstrong. And, and they didn't know what happened. They didn't want to know what had happened. They didn't want anything to do with her at that point. So how did we ultimately track her down to try to talk to her? Well, uh, we work for the state of Tennessee and we have access to, uh, as investigators of the state of Tennessee, we do have access to driver's license information. And so you just sort of, we didn't really get flagged on that, but we just sort of routinely throughout the investigation, check back on that data to see if there's any change in it, because it had been showing her residence that she claimed with her driver license that she had been living at the phases facility, which of course we knew was no longer true by the time we began the investigation. And at some point, we checked in with that data and we observed that she had updated her address to one of the surrounding counties outside of Nashville. And so we were able to take that information, look up the property record for that, get a name for the property record of where she was living, and then just sort of scamming, scanning through her Facebook records, we noticed a relationship with the person that she that owned the house where she claimed that she was living and just sort of looking at Facebook posts and then finding that person's profile. We were able to establish that she had moved in with her sister again outside of Nashville, sort of in the suburbs. And so 
I was working on some different things at the time, but we dispatched a team of investigators uh, down there to try to go and speak with her. Uh, and basically her sister answered the door and said, uh, yeah, that's my sister, but no, uh, I haven't seen her and I'm not going to help you track her down either, more or less in so many words. So we did try to speak with her and everything, but ultimately that was refused uh, in terms of the investigation. And so circling back to, you know, the investigative tactics that we employed, um, even without being able to speak to a subject, potentially elicit a confession by, you know, that sort of interview, um, we were still able to establish with the investigate with the information we obtained from the investigation that she was the only person that had access to the grant program on behalf of phases and that she was making entries into that software claiming that her people were being served by phases inc who had at one time had been clients of phases inc and that's how she obtained their information and they were indigent persons at least at the time that they were being served but ultimately, they in no way, shape, or form could have been served by phases in. So we're able to establish this objective, solid evidence that a fraudulent scheme was ongoing, even without ever speaking with Ms. Armstrong directly, despite our best efforts to try. Because uh, I guess a lot of folks outside of the state of Tennessee wouldn't be aware, but investigators with the control of the Treasury, we are not law enforcement. We are ultimately just investigators, but we are not law enforcement, so we don't have the ability and I know that law enforcement doesn't have the ability to compel people because of the Fifth Amendment. But we don't have the ability to compel you to sit down with us. Um, you know, so that was not we tried our best to speak with her as a subject of the investigation, but we did not ever do so throughout the course of the investigation. You talked about how, you know, this case was unique, not only for you know the, the set of characters in it, but also how, you know, it's a it's a good case study for learning and teaching purposes, right? Absolutely. What are, you know, kind of the broader implications of this case for maybe some other nonprofits or, you know, grant awarding bodies? Like what can be learned there? Sure. No, thank you. I think that's a great question. Um, and, and fortunately, with the work that we do, you know, we publish public reports at the end of our investigations. And we do try to point out, you know, if there had been an internal control breakdown or a compliance authority prescribed rule or policy procedure breakdown that allowed this scheme to occur. We try to point those things out. Um, and, and so I, I think that's very valuable. So, so what's sort of a good takeaway for folks involved with nonprofits or other recipients of grants or, or entities that award grants for this uh, for this case? And, and I'll start by saying that, you know, if you're an entity that provides a grant, or if you're a subrecipient of a grant and what you provide is a good or a service or money to fulfill some mission, I think that that's great. But if you're not a certified fraud examiner or not aspiring CFE and you're listening to this, something you have to understand, it's not an if, it is a when. There are people in the world that are going to try to defraud you because you are giving away some service, some good, some product, or some money. So think about that as you administer your programs. Now, one thing that we learned going back through the review of all the data uh, when we were establishing, you know, what is our misappropriation? What is our theft amount due to these false entries made into the grant disbursement system? One thing that was very interesting that came up was that one of these individuals, like a lot of them that we noticed were incarcerated, had been incarcerated for short term, short -term uh, offenses like they served a weekend or three or four days for getting arrested for DUI or simple drug possession. 
But one of those persons actually ended up serving significant amount of time for, you know, just routine, repeated drug offenses. Maybe it was even a possible distribution charge. I'm not exactly sure. But that individual, she was incarcerated for a very long period of time. And what we noted, and it was in a county jail adjacent to adjacent to Nashville. And what we found was interesting is there was a different nonprofit that had a contract with that county jail to provide substance abuse services to, you know, inmates there who wanted to try to beat addictions and who had approval from a judge to enroll in this type of program or those types of programs. And the entity that was providing those services for that county jail also was a recipient of addiction recovery, recovery program grant funds, you know, for when it would provide those services to indigent persons. And sort of reviewing the data uh, from that person's information who was receiving those services from both the third party that was providing them at the county jail and receiving them supposedly, although not really from Phases Inc., is that within mental health and substance abuse services, giant database of the of the persons that received the services from these entities for whom the agency paid the grant money, ultimately that person had the same unique identifying information, right? Like that person had the same social security number. And even though that's not how these programs would identify them, they would be anonymized by a unique identifying number within the grant program. And so if an entity like phases or an entity like the place at the jail applied to get grant money for serving you, they would upload your personal information, but that would get checked in the system and you as an individual would get applied that unique identifying number, but it wouldn't be sensitive. So if it ever got leaked out into the world through like a data breach, it wouldn't identify your social or that type of thing. So what does that mean? I know that might sound kind of confusing, but what that ultimately means is that mental health and substance abuse services, what we found is they were paying for some of the same services on the same day to two separate entities for serving the same one person. And what we determined about those types of services is it was not physically possible to have served one person in two separate places on the same day because that person had been incarcerated. The most telling of those, of course, was the bed day. They would get reimbursed for each bed day that they had the person there at their facility or they were in jail receiving services from this third-party nonprofit or if they were at Phases Inc. supposedly, you know, receiving uh, inpatient type services there. But beyond that, and talking with officials at different jails, including this one, but also others, they said that there were no circumstances whatsoever where a third party would be, you know, a nonprofit would be calling in or coming in for visitation and providing these services. Only the selected grant, uh, the, the selected contractor, excuse me, that the, that the jail there had contracted with was able to come in and in-person provide those services. So, and that was, I believe, also spelled out in the grant contracts too. And so what all that means is, is that mental health and substance abuse services had the data within its system to see that it was paying out at the same time on the same days for the same person, this money that it was not possible and it was not eligible to be paying out. And I don't really feel like, you know, it wasn't the fault of any of the people at mental health that I talked to that this happened. I just feel like the system became too large for them to consider this. 
they got too backed up on trying to do site visits at all the grant subrecipients. And for them to sort of sit down and think outside the box of how we could catch these types of things was never something they really had time to do because it wasn't within their realm of what they were instructed to go do, which they were trying to take care of, those types of things. But the, the learning point for a granting agency or a subrecipient in all this is that you have the ability, you have your strengths, and you have your limited resources. We all have constraints. We all have limited resources. We all have limited time. But we all probably have some area where if we revisit what we have and the data that we have and the information that we have, is there a way to rethink this to where we could learn something else, to where we could verify that we're following all of our policies, procedures, rules, laws, and other things? And could we learn something or maybe even do something more efficiently than we're already doing it? So the takeaway is, what can you do with the data that you have that may tell you something more than you currently know? May help you catch something that you haven't previously caught, may help you save time on some task that allows you to devote time somewhere else because we all have limited time, we all have limited resources. So that was really the main great takeaway that I thought really could be applied sort of not only, it could be applied to any sort of business really in my, in my humble opinion, um, but, but also going back to the theme of this being a ghost story, it's also a very scary thought, right? The fact that this granting agency truthfully had the information all along to have caught this very early on in the process. And they just never really had the time to sit down and think about how they could have used their own data to catch this type of thing and prevent it from happening again. So, you know, if you're in a type of position of oversight in these types of situations, let that sort of scare you, the thought of that sort of scare you into rethinking your processes. And maybe that will help you uncover something, maybe not necessarily nefarious, but maybe something terribly inefficient that you could improve within your own policies, procedures, and processes. Michael, I think those are some great takeaways from an incredibly unique case. Thank you. I really wanted to thank you for being here today and for talking with us. Was there anything else you wanted to touch on before we before we wrap up today? I mean, my God, first of all, thank you so much, Rihanna. I really appreciate being here and the chance to talk about it. You know, the more we've sat here and talked about it, my mind keeps triggering off all these memories and firing off of all these other things that we could talk about in this case. And I don't think that anybody really wants to listen for, say, a three-hour podcast or something on that. Oh, so one other interesting element of the case that sort of came up is, is you know, uh, we had very limited information. You know, we didn't have an office to go back to and pull files. But what we also had was the grant contract that was on file with the state of Tennessee uh, that, that Miss Armstrong had entered into when she took over Phases Inc. And it was largely the same type of boilerplate, you know, language that appears year after year in grant contracts. There's nothing really unique about that. But some of the names did change, right? Mr. Rogers was no longer listed on that grant contract. He had retired from the business, unfortunately. So she was listed as the director throughout most of the grant contract for the final year. But in reviewing that document, it was some 25 pages of, you know, a lot of boring stuff, right? But in reviewing that document, we noticed there was also a new name who just in the middle of the document, it was sort of listed out like, don't list out necessarily your board of directors. But but the, the aspect of that part of the grant contract, I remember it was something like list out other persons who may have oversight. Sort of, I think it was alluding to the fact of like, Demonstrate to us that you have some sort of separation of duties, some sort of control, some sort of oversight, some sort of situation where it is not just one person in control, which is truthfully what the situation was at Phases Inc. Um, but, you know, but on paper, not necessarily. And I don't remember the name. That's fine. So I don't need to drag somebody else into it necessarily. 
But, you know, th there was that other name there. And it said something like director, even though Julia Armstrong was otherwise listed as director. And so I thought, man, I, I would love to talk to that person. Maybe it's a co-conspirator. Who knows? And so in doing some digging, um, was able to find that person in court records. That person had an upcoming case at the time that we found that information, had an upcoming case in Nashville, you know, near our office at the downtown courthouse in Nashville. And so I just on a on a like I just sort of called up the office of the district attorney and I said, hey, I'd like to talk to the assistant DA who's in charge of this case for Jane Doe here. Looks like the case number's coming up and on such and so date. And this is the case number. Have that person please call me back. We'd really appreciate it. Thanks so much. And so uh, the, the gentleman, I believe it was, uh, called me back eventually and he asked, you know, who I was and, and what I how he could help me. And I said, you know, this person was, I, I think, listed as maybe a bookkeeper or maybe some type of director on a grant contract for a nonprofit. And, and so I'm just trying to get some information about this nonprofit because it just kind of disappears. You know, not, not trying to get her in any trouble. I just need some information about what happened. And I couldn't, oh, it was a phone call, so I didn't see his jaw drop, but I could sort of tell that he was he was sort of surprised by that. He said, you're saying this person was like in charge of the of the accounting records or something for, for like a business or a nonprofit. And I said, well, yes, that's my understanding. I'm trying to get more information. And he said, wow, I mean, that's, that's really kind of surprising to me. Do you know what that person, what that person's current court case is even about? And I said, well, no, I, I don't be honest with you. He said, well, uh, th that person was supposed to be doing time, I think for, for like a DUI to, to come and serve weekend time for a DUI or something like that. And that person drove to the county jail to do that and drove up to the security gate and was heavily intoxicated and brandishing a firearm at the security guard. And and that's what this court case is about. And I thought, oh, my gosh, that's that's pretty serious stuff here. Um, but in any case, he reached out to that person's defense attorney and the defense attorney corresponded with me by email. Again, I, I, I don't have anything against your person that has nothing to do with your current case. I'm just trying to get information about whatever that person's affiliation was with with phases in thankfully they agreed so i went over on that court date and we went and met one of those small conference rooms they provide for you know us uh, defendants and their counselors and, and and i explained the situation to that person and uh, that person had also been a former client uh, of phases inc and, and actually had been there uh when when rogers was still directing it and really I, I took away from that like really really appreciated rogers as a person and what he had done to try to help her and and, and as a matter of fact after she completed the program for a, a period of time um he hired her like on contract to just do basic bookkeeping for the bit for that for the phases business until ultimately she was able to i think secure employment elsewhere and move away from the area um, but but she became very upset in telling her what had happened um ultimately with phases and and what we established was that, you know, while she had been involved with phases as a client and as sort of a contract uh, worker at one point, she had nothing to do. She wasn't even in Tennessee at the time that she was listed as, you know, some sort of director or overseer or, or whatever it was for phases in the grant contract. Never gave permission to sign her name to it. Never gave permission to be listed on it. Had no affiliation with it whatsoever. So that provided us information. It told us that, you know, Ms. Armstrong was not above falsifying a grant document. Um, and it also helped us secure a felony forgery charge because she signed this person's name on a grant document that ultimately awarded, you know, over the theft statute thresholds in the state of Tennessee 
R felonies above a thousand, and then a, a D felonies above twenty five hundred, and a C felony is above ten. So that was a C felony forgery because the value of that specific grant was above ten thousand um, dollars, which was just you know it comes time to you know getting a person indicted and then subsequently working through pleas and or potential trial. We find that especially in white collar cases, it helps us to layer more criminal charges because it helps us to achieve a guilty plea after an indictment without having to go through the headache of a trial and still secure, you know, restitution amounts that are, I suppose you could say just for the victim. It's never truly just for a victim to get some sort of interest-free small restitution payment program on behalf of the subject who's just defrauded them for thousands and thousands maybe even hundreds of thousands of dollars, right, depending on the situation. But regardless, it helps us to try to secure that restitution payment and that guilty plea down the road without having to go through the headache of a trial. So I know that's a little bit tangential there, but that was another interesting aspect of this case and this investigation. Ultimately, sort of the 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 what happened post-indictment sort of side of this story. And, and, you know, another thing that's important to consider, I feel like people will read about a fraud case in the news and they'll hear that somebody was sentenced to pay X whatever dollars, thousand, million, whatever dollars of restitution. And in your mind, I think you subconsciously think, that's great. That victim's going to get that amount of money back. And you just think in your mind that they just walk out of court that day with a big check and they go deposit in their bank account and they're whole again. And sometimes that happens. But more often than not, they get a fraction, if anything, of actual restitution payments. And so, you know, I love my job and I love our mission and I love to get guilty and you know, people pleading guilty and these restitution program uh, programs in place. But the fact of the matter is, is oftentimes they see a fraction or nothing of that actual restitution down the road. Because, you know, <laughs> if a person had this money to begin with, Typically, he or she is not stealing it, right? So in the case of Phases, Inc., again, we didn't have any records. We didn't have anybody that actually talked to us. But I'm proud of the fact that we were able to, beyond any sort of reasonable doubt, prove that Ms. Armstrong, using Phases, Inc. as a front, was able to make false entries into a computer and steal over $6,000 from the state of Tennessee. And I know every time I get the presentation, you know, there's someone who's listening and says, $6,000, that's nothing. You wasted all that time on that. But really important to take away from this is that was, that is what we could prove beyond a reasonable doubt. So if we got in front of a jury and had to present this case, we can prove that beyond any reasonable doubt and feel comfortable we're going to walk away and confident we're going to walk away with a verdict of guilty, even if the person doesn't decide to plead guilty. Obviously, even beyond what we could prove in the grant information showing the person, these, these people, these clients could not have been in two places at one time, and therefore Ms. Armstrong was making fraudulent entries into computer system to steal money. Uh, that's what we could prove. And I'm sure that some of the other entries on days that people were not incarcerated, these people were not at phases. They were not receiving any, they were not receiving any sort of uh, services from phases anchor from this one from. And beyond that, you know, there were private pay clients at phases during that year too, right? People whose family got them into a rehab program because they were suffering from addiction and they would write checks. I mean, we saw the checks and the bank statements uh, that we were able to get from phases Inc. Um, for that year. 
And so I have no doubt in my mind that she was misappropriating some of those funds too, especially even still. I mean, we have no evidence that it occurred, but I'm sure that some family members showed up and paid cash over to Phases Inc. for their person services, right? And I'm sure that she misappropriated that money too. But when it comes down to time of prosecuting somebody, you have to go with what you can prove beyond a reasonable doubt. Otherwise, your case is going to get tossed. The person's going to get away with it with no punishment whatsoever. So that's why we settled on that amount. And it was good, at least for it being something of a lower dollar amount. Ms. Armstrong was able to go to her landlord's sister in this situation because I saw the check that came into mental health ultimately. And she paid the restitution in full when she pled guilty uh, so that she could, I believe, be on unsupervised probation as opposed to supervised probation. Because as we had learned from talking to people, it did appear that she had relapsed. And that's probably what led her down the road of spending all of Faze's money and not paying any sort of rental payments. Now, that also triggers a memory. We were able to obtain Faze's bank records for that last year. How were we able to do that? Well, fortunately, the grant was set up by that time to where all of the grant reimbursement payments had to be made via direct deposit from the state of Tennessee, the state of Tennessee's Department of Finance and Administration to the bank account on record for the entity. And it couldn't be somebody's personal bank account. It had to be a bank account set up in the name of this entity that was awarded the grant. So we were able to see that, get that you know, routing and account information from the Department of Finance and Administration because we all work for the state government. And then our office has administrative subpoena power in the state of Tennessee. So we're able to subpoena those bank records. And what was very interesting in all those bank records, of course, is is you saw, you know, you saw payments uh, for things like groceries at the house. It was an inpatient facility. So you'd see trips to Kroger, trips to Sam's Club, or trips to Walmart, that probably for grocery purchases. But you also saw a lot of things that you wouldn't necessarily expect to see uh, being paid for by a drug or substance abuse rehab, like purchases at a lot of liquor stores or lottery stores or places that sell a substance called Kratom, which I still don't exactly know what it is, but it's my understanding that it's something that you can buy in a lot of states because it's it's not necessarily legal, but it's not illegal. Uh, and it mimics some type of uh, some type of substance out there in the world that would normally flag on a drug screen. So lots and lots of purchases like that. In addition, we saw uh, purchases being made in the state of Florida at a beach town. Uh, at a time that coincided with Facebook posts from the same beach town on Miss Armstrong's Facebook page. Um, so I'm sure someone would be asking the question, well, would that not also be provable as theft? And I would say, you know, generally speaking, that would be a great indicator of theft going on. But what we also did not see in those bank statements was any paychecks being made to Miss Armstrong for her work as the director of Phases, Inc., and we, because they didn't have any sort of time records or employee contracts, because no documentation like that existed by the time we came along to investigate the matter, we had no idea what she was supposed to be paid. Now, take that into a court of law with a defense attorney whose job it is, is to pick apart your case. If you go in and start making these arguments that all these purchases at liquor stores and for Kratom and lottery tickets and whatnot and a vacation to Florida are theft, he or she is going to come back and say, my client never took a paycheck. That's the only way my client could ever get compensated for all the hard work that she did to help these people in this program. And it's really going to deflate your case. Circling back to why we settled on this very firm 
6,000 plus dollars of false entries made into the government grant system for people we know she could never have served. And so, you know, sort of a multifaceted uh, lesson takeaway there, uh, starting off on, you know, uh, the good and bad side of restitution agreements and also why we settled on what may seem like a low dollar amount in this case, but really it was the best decision because it was such a firm thing led to a guilty plea, if that makes sense. Definitely. It, and thank you for you know bringing up the, the restitution and how that process isn't always just or that it doesn't always work out, frankly. And also, you know, shedding a bit of light on the decisions that are made in the investigative process, especially when it comes to trying to secure that uh, that guilty verdict. Thank you again so much, Michael. This was great, and I'm super glad we were able to talk together, uh, not just me watching you speak <laughs> on the <laughs> stage. And thank you for listening. You can find this podcast along with all other episodes of Broad Talk on acfp.com. Spotify, iTunes, or wherever you listen to your podcast. This has been Rihanna Scoggins, signing off.